Welcome back to the Curious Catholic Podcast for the ninth and final installment of our Dante series, which, if you've listened to the first few, began as a Lenten Dante series that um, gave way to Eastertide. And then as the um, momentum of summer took over our lives, uh, Paul Camacho and I uh, joining us again for um, our, our final movement here. Um, the summer swept us along. So now we're recording deep into ordinary time. Uh, but in a way, in the world of podcasts, this doesn't matter because you could be listening to this five years from now and have <laughs> no no temporal reference. And that's, that's all good uh, as we consider Dante and the themes today of the heights of heaven, uh, the highest heaven, uh, the vision of the eternal, uh, which we'll uh, hopefully enjoy for this, just that, uh, for eternity. Um, so, Paul, um, here we are. We are here. We are. We are way up there um, <laughs> in the heights. Uh, we'll look at Paradiso um, thirty-one, thirty-two, thirty-three today. And um, I don't know. Can you can you set the scene for us? Can you give us a quick sketch of where we are and what we should look forward to? Sure. Yeah, I'm glad um, to be here with you again, Matt, here at the end of all things. That is also the beginning of all things um, in our second life. Uh, I will say also, we, we we didn't finish in Lent or in Easter, but we did finish, we are finishing before the year of Dante is over. So at least we made that yes. milestone. Um, so we can be proud of that, I suppose. That's right. Mm -hmm. So Paradiso 31, 32, and 33, are the last three cantos of um, the entire comedy. And, uh, you know, in the foregoing 30 cantos, what we had was a journey through the various spheres of heaven, each of which was represented by a, um, a star or a heavenly planet, um, including the moon and the sun and the other planets, the stars themselves. And now we find ourselves in the highest heaven, what um, Dante calls the Empyrean. And we are now in the, either the innermost or the highest most, they turn out to be sort of the same thing, um, part of that highest heaven. And Dante gives us a number of images to imagine it. Um, the, the image that begins Canto 31 is the image of an enormous, luminous white rose, he says. Uh, we could imagine, um, uh, a rose in which if you were looking down on it from above, you would see in the middle, you would see the stem and then the petals of the rose would be um, in cir circular form, sort of um, folding out from the middle of the stem. The other image that we, that might come to mind is um, like a Roman amphitheater where you had, where you'd have like a stage in the middle on the, on the, on the, ground level and then you'd have surrounding it the seating that would be um, ascending even as it got into wider and wider circles and it shouldn't be lost on us that this is of course the exact opposite image of that of hell um, hell was a kind of descending um, concentric circles here we have a kind of ascending concentric circles and the this flower this rose this amphitheater it all um, is populated uh, by the saints, 
um, those who are glorified in heaven and will be with God forever. And it's made up, Dante tells us, equally um, of those who, in the hope of Christ to come, loved God, um, on the one hand, so the Hebrew people, or those who came before Christ. There's a few non-Hebrew people, but um, those who came before Christ who loved, who loved Christ in an anticipatory way. And then it's also made up um, an equal number of Christians, those who came after Christ and who um, were faithful to Christ in some way. Again, there are a few um, exceptions in the form of non-traditional, let us say, mm-hmm. um, Christians or pagans who were saved uh, for Dante. We don't need to get into that exactly, but the, the central idea here is that Christ is the center um, that unites all of those who are here in this um, heavenly rose. Right. And Dante, the pilgrim, finds himself um, uh, sort of down, looking on the ground floor, looking up at these rows and rows and rows of all of those who are in heaven. Mm-hmm. And there are not that many, but there are a few seats that are still empty mm-hmm. for all the people to come. Dante seems to be even even here in the highest heaven making his, his commentary about the moral degeneracy of his own age. But um, to be sure, the, the providential unfolding of salvation history hasn't been accomplished yet. Um, but Dante is kind of witnessing it at, at a particular moment um, here. There's one yep. more image that we... Or, go ahead, Matt. You probably were going to... No, I just... I, I liked how he described coming upon this this site as, um, as he says, you know, if the barbarians coming from that region with Helice covers every day, wheeling with her son, were dumbstruck at the site of Rome and her majestic monuments, right? So imagine... Mm-hmm. It doesn't have to be all that specific to to the, like coming upon any grand site, uh, right. any grand city, or or wonder uh, of human craft, right? Um, and he's saying, with what amazement must I have been filled, right, looking upon the Empyrean, if this is just if if this happens in the natu- in the here and the now when people come upon some grand wonder of human mm-hmm. uh, ingenuity, right? Imagine how much more so the wonder, the joy. Um, the vision grants Dante. He says, I was content neither to hear nor speak a word. So again, back to this theme, I think of just being fulfilled and, and, and the saturated uh, experience. And I also liked when he said, and as a pilgrim in the temple of his vow, he, he's the, the, the pilgrim has fulfilled the pilgrimage, right? The, mm-hmm. At least the journey there and the purpose at the pilgrimage site. But he looks lovingly about and expects to tell his tale when he gets home. I like that idea of seeing so as to commune, communicate to others, which I don't know, we're both teachers. And I think that's a lot of what we do. We get excited by what we see in texts, right. in ideas, <laughs> in systems. I want to make podcasts about it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> we do, we do <laughs> exactly what we're doing right now. <laughs> we right. want to show people what we have seen, or if we can't show them, then tell them. It's so that they hopefully can see it for themselves eventually. So that's, those are just right. some and things we, that drew I love that. I, I think you point exactly to what Dante makes more and more explicit. Dante, the poet, the author of the poem in, Conto, in these final three contests, because he begins to reflect in an even more explicit way upon his calling as a poet to bring this to the readers of the poem. And he sort of, he's done this before and a number of times sort of breaking the fourth wall to address the reader. 
but he does this explicitly now and saying, I'm recalling this, I'm trying to remember this, it escapes my memory, but I'm now as the poet writing this to you, I'm praying to, this comes out in Canto 33, the final canto of the poem, I'm praying to remember this now, even as I write this, so that I can offer it to you, my reader. Uh, so, but let me point out another thing that you said about the the metaphor, the simile of him um, going, uh, of a barbarian going to Rome. We, we've mentioned this before, but Dante um, thinks that the Roman Empire is prepared in a certain way and is emblematic in a certain way of um, heaven. And this is this is not uncontroversial. But Dante earlier in the paradise in the Paradiso in a canto we didn't talk about talks about heaven as being that Rome where Christ is um, truly a Roman. And there's this really interesting way in which in this final vision, by linking it with Roman architecture in its description and by linking it in this simile with coming upon Rome and seeing it in all its architectural majesty. And then furthermore, by um, linking the saints with nobles in a court and describing Mary in the in Canto 32 as the empress of this court, he's actually realizing in an, imagine, an imaginary vision an imperial um, ideal in the highest heaven. So the, the very ideal that he had hoped for on earth that he never saw come to be, namely a, a Roman empire that had united the people in the temporal order and with the church kind of ruling in, over the eternal, here in heaven, he's able to imagine it in this grand majestic vision. And yet at the same time, he links that vision to, as we said at the beginning, this image of an enormous heavenly rose. And he puts these little touches in there that kind of like domesticate it at the same time that he makes it this grand imperial vision. So for example, he describes these angels who, um, I should step back and say, the rose is constituted by all of the saints who are seated, but coming down into the center of the rose is a like a beam of light. At first, Dante can't see this. And that is God himself, who's both above as irradiating down into the rose, but also as lighting up is present um, to all people in the rose equally who are surrounding it like in a giant coliseum that are all looking um, upwards towards God. And he gives this really great image. He says um, that the, the angels are flying back and forth. They're mediating the glory of God, flying up into the highest um, heaven where God lives and then flying down over the um, saints that are arranged um, in their seats. And they are sort of passing on to them the glory of God. And he, he describes them using this great image um, of bees that are flying back and forth. So he says, um, the, the others, the angels, who even as they fly, behold and sing the glory of him who stirs their love and sing his goodness that raised them up so high as a swarm of bees that in one instant plunge deep into blossoms and the very next go back to where their toil is turned to sweetness. These descended to the splendid flower adorned with many petals and then flew up to where their love forever dwells. Their faces were of living flame. Their wings were gold. The rest was of a whiteness never matched by snow. When they descended to the flower, they bestowed the peace and love acquired with their beating wings upon the petals row on row. 
And so we have this interesting way in which they lift up the glory of the saints. They fly in. That's like the pollen, right? That they get from the flower. They fly up back to their, um, the hive that is God himself. And then they return back. This is the twist on the image, giving back the honey to the flower itself, right? To increase its, um, happiness and glory. It's this really great. Dante's so great at this, right, Matt? He gives us these kind of beautiful little images that are so, it's pastoral, it's a garden, right? But it's a way of describing perfectly the kind of mediation of grace that the angels um, have, especially in in high medieval philosophy and theology. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no doubt. And in the grand poem that is the comedy, there've been a lot of surprises, especially probably for first time readers or, you know, probably delightful surprises that people or turns or twists that people maybe ha- have not kept in mind upon second and third and fourth readings. But um, in this canto, we have maybe one of the more surprising moves from Dante and the fact that he's going to look around and Beatrice is not going to be there. And he's going to have uh, an old man, as he says, um, even though he's adorned with glory, like, like all the others. Um, so who are we meeting here? And why do you think Dante gives us a third guide and teacher at this very late stage of his, uh, his comedy? That is a great question. And it is a moment here where Dante, one of Dante's guides is replaced with another one of his guides at a, and Dante is surprised by it. And so it should recall for us when Beatrice first uh, replaced Virgil and Virgil, had, he turns to, to speak to Virgil and Virgil is gone. In the same way he turns to speak to Beatrice, who has been his guide since he um, made it to the top of Mount Purgatory. And instead he finds um, a man whose eyes and cheeks, he says, are suffused with kindly joy and whose whole appearance shown a loving father's tender- tenderness, he says. Um, mm-hmm. And he says to this man, where is she in the same um uh, expecting right, that, that Beatrice would be there. And it turns out that he's speaking to St. Bernard, the great Cistercian um, monk. Uh, Bernard was famous um, for his, for two things, um, especially his commentary on the Song of Songs, the great wedding feast, the same featured in the appearance of Beatrice about, back on Mount Purgatory. And he's famous for his devotion to um, Mary, uh, a devotion that we learn um, Dante shared in. So Bernard was famous uh, in addition to this commentary and his devotion to Mary, and, and indeed probably because of these, for his mystical contemplation. It was The idea was that he um, had seen a foretaste of heaven in his devotion, mystical, prayerful devotion. Um, and, you know, for all of these reasons, Bernard turns out to be, he's a, he's a good guide for going into heaven, but it's surprising that he would replace Beatrice here. Mm-hmm. I think a couple of things are going on. I, I'd love to get your thoughts on this too, Matt. But to me, the first thing that seems pretty obvious is just that Dante wants an opportunity in the Divine Comedy to sort of give one more offer of praise to Beatrice and to have a kind of final exchange mm. between the two of them mm-hmm. that by kind of having switching to a third, a third guide, Dante now can sort of place Beatrice in her rightful place in the heavenly Imperium and 
they can have an exchange in which he's able to praise her and thank her for what it is that she's done for him. So I think that that's definitely part of the poetic rationale or the narrative rationale, maybe. Mm-hmm. But the second thing is, I think that Bernard represents in a really interesting way a fellow love poet to mm-hmm. Dante, his commentaries on the Song of Songs, his devotion to Mary, and as we'll see um, in the final canto, the way in which he speaks of Mary as if he were a courtly lover praising his lady, and yet that love has been transformed and transfigured by the grace of the incarnation and the difference of that Christ makes means that Bernard in a certain way and is a figure of Dante or a figure that Dante also wants to be like, right? Um, Bernard Mm -hmm. unites affect and intellect together in a prayerful praise and in the love of a woman, in Bernard's case of Mary, in Dante's case of Beatrice, both of them um, have this see this woman as indicating, inviting, um, even cajoling and helping them to come um, into the heart of God himself. So they're able to um, sing a kind of gratitude and reference to um, their beloved lady. And so the, the, tr- the trope of courtly love becomes transfigured by both of them. And I think that that is also an important element of um, why Bernard sort of gets the last the last three contos here. Um, mm-hmm. So they both can look they both can look upwards at um, the ones who led them into the heart of um, into God's own heart. If I can put it that way. Yeah. Right. Oh, I like a lot of what of what you're saying. And let's return to uh, the, the sort of farewell to Beatrice. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess the best testament to his decision to put Bernard here is that it just, it seems to work, mm-hmm. you know, uh, it's just, it just seems like it, it it's cohesive, even if it's late in the game. I think that there's also an advantage to having someone, a name that would be more recognizable for certain sort of theological or mystical emphases for maybe the, the, the educated reader. Uh, especially Bernard's, as you're saying, his his love mysticism and his and his Marian devotion to have him stand out as an exemplar in those regards, I think, would lend something to the poem that Beatrice alone could not. Even though, as the Hollanders comment, like Beatrice would have done a fine job <laughs> as mm-hmm. guide here. Like it's not like she's deficient, but and there does seem to be something though in just the mediated nature of paradise that and at a certain point i think it might be even be in 32 and this is in a different context but bernard's like you know what dante it it all works in god's mercy and providence this is talking Mm -hmm. about the children before reason but in this context i think it still works right like you don't know all the inner workings but isn't it isn't it beautiful and grand and glorious and beyond your comprehension so don't try to. I forget the exact word, but I think he uses the word the, the term your over subtle thought. Like, right. don't try to de- dissect it scholastically mm-hmm. too much. It just it works poetically, which it might be the the best compliment we could provide. But um, I, I do like what you're saying about the farewell to Beatrice because um, we have the prayer of thanksgiving in a way, right? Uh, prayer, right. 
praise and gratitude for Beatrice. Um, and Maybe we should just read that actually, Matt, because mm-hmm. um, it would it'd be a nice way to kind of put a put a big, bit of a bookend on on this canto, but mm-hmm. also to um, show how here in the final cantos of heaven we see the fulfillment of what was promised to us at the very beginning of the comedy as a whole. So one of the things I joke about with um, my students and I was just, I was actually just talking to a student about this and um, he had commented on saying, well, what are you going to do now that you're finishing, finishing up the divine comedy? And I said, well, um, I'm going to do the only thing that, um, makes any sense to do. And that's to start reading it again <laughs> from the beginning. And I think that, um, I think that's right. That's right of all great literature that as soon as we finish it, then we're in a position to be able to start reading it for the first time. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think it's especially true of the comedy because Dante has this incredible talent for anticipating and also bringing, anticipating the end in his beginnings and also bringing to culmination and, and fulfillment um, what was implicit in the beginning in his ends. And so the, this prayer that Dante offers is at verse 79, it starts at verse 79 to Beatrice. Um, the scene is he and Bernard are standing on the floor of the, this amphitheater of the Rose. And he looks way, way, way up there and close up to where Mary is. Um, he sees Beatrice. One of the things that's amazing about heaven is that um, no matter how far away you are, you can see them perfectly. Um, so mm-hmm. he's able to see her expression perfectly in her face as if he's standing right in front of her. And he prays this. He says, O lady who gives strength to all my hope and who allowed yourself for my salvation to leave your footprint there in hell. Okay, I'm going to interrupt the, the, with some commentary, but remember, this recalls us all the way back to Canto 2, where Virgil tells Dante that he was summoned by Beatrice when Beatrice came down into um, limbo and found Virgil and asked him to come um, for Virgil's, I mean, for Dante's salvation. And there, Virgil said, echoed the exact same thing. He says, how, how do you come down here, you're coming down here, here into heaven or into hell from heaven. And Beatrice says, yeah, I most desire to go back there to heaven, but I desire even more the salvation of this one who, um, who loved me and whom I love and he's in trouble. So I, I send to you. So Dante's recalling all the way back to that first mediating. You were talking about mediating grace, um, Beatrice going to Virgil, Virgil, Virgil going to Dante, right? Mm-hmm. Um, that's being recalled here at the end. And then Dante says this, of all the many things that I have seen, I know the grace and virtue I've been shown come from your goodness and your power. It is you who, on no matter what the path, have drawn me forth from servitude to freedom by every means that you had in your power. So here Dante is recalling all the way back. We talked about this on the very first podcast that we recorded to the Vita Nuova and the appearance of Beatrice on the streets of Florence that first awakened in Dante that desire for eternal beauty that he saw instantiated in her and beckoning him and drawing him and calling him. And then in the Divine Comedy that he imagines 
actually as taking uh, a more um, instead of a beckoning role or as a as a, a kind of terminus that was pulling him now a more active and engaged and personal role in actually mediating the grace through dialogue through sending others and then um, through coming herself and, and leading him uh, up and through the heavens and then he says this keep your munificence alive in me so that my soul which you have healed may please you when it leaves its mortal frame. So again, here Dante is reminding us as the poem is coming to his to the end, his own life is not yet coming to an end and something still has to be accomplished. He has to live in such a way that he becomes worthy of what it is that he's been shown, which is also an invitation to us as his readers to identify with him and having been led through and up and into heaven and through the transformation of our own loves to want or desire this glorification, this beauty that he is laying out for us, that we also would want to live in this way. And then I'll just, this is the the end of the exchange. Um, Dante says, this was my prayer. And she, however far away she seemed, smiled and looked down at me, then turned again to the eternal fountain. And so the image we have is of Beatrice looking up to heaven Dante makes this prayer to her and she turns again away from where her heart most desires to be um, in love to um, the one who loves her. And she gives him what she gave him on earth and that she gave him at the top of Mount Purgatory. And now that she gives him here in the highest heaven, namely her smile, a communication, Mm -hmm. a gracious communication of personal beauty. Right. Um, We've talked many times uh, before about the way in which the face for Dante is the place in which the personal beauty is expressed, right? But it also, as we keep reading, what we learn is that this very same smile is going to be repeated again in the way in which God, who takes on um, our face in the incarnation, um, will look at Dante as well. So the smiles of heaven here that is exchanged between Dante and Beatrice is again a kind of anticipation of his... Um, passing into the same kind of enjoyment that Beatrice herself is enjoying. And she turns her face upwards as she did time and time again in paradise. And as as she would do that, Dante would look at her, she would look upwards, and then Dante would be strengthened and lifted by his love further and further up. And the same thing um, happens here as he's looking upwards um, to her, his, his heart, his love and his sight are increased and um, he, he with along with Bernard, he looks upwards to, um, uh, um, in this case, not quite to the to God. He's not quite ready for that yet. But at the end of Canto Thirty One, he looks upwards to what it is that Bernard is looking at, and that is um, the face of Mary. Mm-hmm. And so Canto Thirty One ends um, uh, with him looking at Mary and Bernard. He says, "Bernard, who saw my eyes were fixed." intent upon the very fire that made him warm, namely the face of Mary. Mm-hmm. He turned his own eyes on her with such affection that he made mine more ardent in their gaze. Yeah. So we have the same exact mediation happening again, right? Now Bernard is looking at Mary, Dante is looking at Mary, and in the sharing of this love, both of their loves are increased. Mm-hmm. Yes, I, I love that. And a similar thing happens, I think, at the end of 32 or somewhere somewhere in the next two contos. And maybe I'll just say a couple quick things about what you said, and then we'll go on to 32 for a brief spell. But 
I, it seemed to me, and I could be wrong, I'm not in the weeds, you know, with how often the word smile appears uh, or the Italian of it, whatever. But what I'm trying to say is it strikes me in this instance of Beatrice smiling at Dante that there isn't the, the mention from Dante, the poet, that some something's been withheld. This seems to be a far more full and complete revelation of the beauty of Beatrice as one of the blessed. Uh, whereas before, it, it, you know, there was even mention from Beatrice that I can't fully smile at you. You'll basically disintegrate, right? Mm-hmm. So, so this this notion that Dante himself, the pilgrim, is far more capacious within to mm-hmm. uh, you know encounter the glory, and then uh, you mentioned. Um, for Dante, the face. I've been dipping into Roger Scruton recently uh, on the topic of the human face, and he does mention a couple times Dante's understanding of the the, the eyes and the mouth as the balconies of the soul. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I think that's a, a beautiful image. And for Scruton, the face is very it's kind of my phrasing is is the seat of our personality and individuality and freedom, uh, and it comes out most fully in the human face, all of that. So just all that came to mind. Um, but you end it where I, we wanted to go, right? With them fixing their gaze on Mary, because that's really the only way to be prepared uh, as to fix your gaze on Christ. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's kind of where we're going, right? As we go into 32. Um, yeah. Can I, I just want to add one thing that you made me think. I, both of those yeah. were excellent points. And I just thinking, the face is the thing that as humans we find most pleasing or most beautiful on its own. Mm-hmm. Um, the um, you think in the the relationship, the, the kind of courtly love relationship, you could write praise to the lips of the beloved, to the eyes of the beloved, to the face mm-hmm. of the beloved. Indeed, the Song of Songs does this, right? Mm-hmm. But then notice the difference between the beauty of the face of the beloved as um, I'm not quite sure what language to use as kind of passive and then as lit up. So the, the lips of the beloved then smiling is mm. the, 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 the infusion of personality and attention and reciprocity into um, what already is the, is the most beauty, beautiful form mm-hmm. uh, for another human being. And the eyes that turn upon you and look at you with love or eyes that have intention behind you. So they become in a certain sense, the face becomes transparent to the spiritual beauty of the one mm-hmm. that you love. And so Dante yeah. always celebrates Beatrice's smile because the smile is a smile of greeting and welcome. It's an mm-hmm. act of um, invitation and of grace, gracious bestowal. Right. And I, I, you're, I think you're exactly right. What we get here is, her unadorned, her, rather her, her fully—it's it's fully adorned, but her un, um, uh, unrestricted, mm-hmm. uh, her, her full um, expression of her entire personality and beauty, right? And Dante's capability to take all of that in. So he's ascended so high that he's able to see the highest created glories in their glorification, and the only thing left is for him to be able to see the glory of the creator himself. Um, and that's what the next two contos are about, or really the final contos about. Yeah. 32, which, you know, we said before recording, we can move through relatively quickly. We get a sense of who is seated where, and we see Eve restored 
which is I think is beautiful. Dante refers to her as a lovely woman, which is I, I do love that Eastern icon of Christ taking Adam and Eve by the hand out of their graves, mm-hmm. um, you know. And um, we we even have an image of at home of Eve facing Mary, and uh, Mary has taken Eve's hand and placed it on her her uh, womb. Hmm. Mary That's bearing amazing. Christ, yeah, yeah. and right. it, it's this great, great image. Um, and we also, you know, there, there's some different uh, relatives of Christ, and Saint uh, Saint Anne uh, just watches, you know, has her eyes fixed upon her daughter uh, in Mary's glory. So there's a lot, go- you know, a lot of people being mentioned, and there's the consideration of children before the age of reason being saved by their. Uh, vicariously, um, but I know you know. It, again, this theme in eighty five, eighty seven comes of the face of Mary. Uh, looking on the face of Mary prepares one to look on the face of Christ, and that and the and the vision of Mary is what we need to see before we view, as what Dante calls the primal love. Um, so I don't know. Is there anything in thirty two that stands out to you that you'd want to mention? Or no, I had also underlined these lines of 85 to 87 bernard says look now on the face that most resembles christ for nothing but its brightness can make you fit to look on christ so the there's at one and the same time in this kind of neat little tear set there's both the the christ the christliness the christ likeness of mary and also the way in which mary is a reference to christ um we have the kind of Marian reflection and preparation in the same moment. Um, we also, the, the only other thing that I would say, um, that there's of course so much here and it occupies Dante scholars because they're really interested in what Canto 32 seems to tell us about how Dante thinks about the arrangement of heaven and who's where, and they like to draw, um, you know, uh, um, different like schematics of of what exactly is going on here we have the appearance for the first time in the entire poem of saint augustine which is maybe a bit of a game that dante has been playing with us um uh because there's so much that's all Cassinian in the text and yet unlike thomas or aristotle even he doesn't get mentioned um until mm-hmm. the very end there's also a this really great um line at the end of 32 where bernard says look um the the time runs short we need to we need to hasten ourselves into the into the final vision but um he says this is at line 145 he says lest by any chance beating your wings and thinking to advance you should fall back you must gain your grace through prayer grace from her who has the power to help you you shall follow me with your devotion so your heart does not stray from my words and then he began this holy supplication and that's the end of the canto. It's really interesting that the end is um, it is setting us up. It's like uh, I read in one of the one of the commentators um, said it's almost as if we take a deep breath at the end of this penultimate canto as we prepare for the final prayer that will begin canto thirty three and also the final vision that will be granted in canto thirty three. Mm-hmm. Second, this idea of beating your wings and falling back, um, that's a reference to the pagan myth of 
Icarus. Um, and here, Bert, right, Icarus um, gets these wings. They're made, they're put together with wax, and he flies too close to the sun, and he falls back away. And this is, Dante here is sort of acknowledging, as we've said before, the audacity of his poem. But at the same time, he's also saying, look, this is, this glory is what the human soul is destined for. And the only way it's accomplished is through the gift, the grace of God. And therefore, we have to dare to do it. But the way we save ourselves from being Icarus-like, right, is by um, always sort of confessing in praise and um, uh, dependency the way in which we need the one who who deigns to give it to us. And so um, he's sort of he's saying, "I'm gonna I'm gonna plunge ahead," but I also um, recognize the way in which this is made possible by another, first Mary, and then of course um, God Himself. Yeah, I love that this final canto starts with this prayer to Mary. And um, there was one particular part that was arresting for me. Maybe I could read from the beginning to that point, which is just uh, line six, and then see where you would want to go within that prayer. But uh, Bernard prays at the beginning of canto 33, uh, Virgin Mother, daughter of your son, more humble and exalted than any other creature, fixed goal of the eternal plan. I mean, there's so much there alone, but moving Mm -hmm. on to the next one. Uh, You are the one who so ennobled human nature that he who made it first did not disdain to make himself of its own making. I thought that was a really arresting way of referencing the the incarnation. Mm -hmm. Um, What what was arresting about it? I agree with you completely. Yeah, I'm going to fail to explain (laughs) why it caused me to stop. But um, I mean, definitely the the repeated use of, of, you know, the word make. The fact it just is a beautiful way and a penetrating way, I think, of giving at least, you know, you know, gave me this this sense of the incarnation of sort of this interpenetration of God into his creation from Mm -hmm. the not that God is ever external to his creation. But you talk about a maker, you're thinking of someone making something external to himself in a way. And now the maker is being made within that original making. Um, <laughs> and, no, no, that's amazing. Yeah, yeah, so that's that's that 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 line was uh, rather striking. It's it's so striking. I mean, it's it is. So I so even let's rewind and then let's come back to what's so striking. As you said, the first three line, the first three verses are um, astonishing in part because in using so few syllables, Dante captures the paradoxes of Mary and glory. So yes. look at the first line, virgin and mother, right? Mm-hmm. An impossibility and yet miraculously accomplished. Daughter mm-hmm. of your son, mm-hmm. again, an impossibility <laughs> and yet accomplished in, in Mary. More humble and more exalted than any other creature, right? Um, and so this impossible possibility or this let's put it differently this impossible actuality the the mm-hmm. um is the very thing that this final canto is about because it is going to be about the god who is both three and one who is both fully human and fully divine who is both beyond 
human comprehension and yet deigns to be comprehended, who in the lines that you quoted, right, is not made, who did the making and yet willed himself to be made in time, right? And mm-hmm. so the opening connects the the paradoxical glory of Mary with um, the kind of grand paradox of the God who is beyond all being and therefore um, escapes the logical categories, not in an irrational way, but in a kind of super rational way. So that, that we see in these, these brilliant lines, we see enacting the very thing that Dante was only describing in the previous um, canto, namely that Mary actually truly does reflect um, the way that God is in her own graced participation in the paradoxical glory of, of God. This continues um, in, in a couple of ways, but one um, way that it continues is in this idea that Mary's creaturely agency was such as to actually make a difference in the divine plan, right? Mm-hmm. And so the, the notion that she ennobled human nature and that that was, it was truly causal. It wasn't the only cause, but it actually was um, part of what brought about the incarnation um, mm-hmm. that God's action depended on Mary's here. And the, the following line right after what, what you had read, Matt, um, says, your womb relit the flame of love. Its heat has made this blossom seed and flower in eternal peace. Again, as a return to that image of, of the rose, it's a linking of, of heat and love, but also warmth that kind of brings the, the flower into its fullest blossoming. Right. Mm-hmm. And then he, um, this is Bernard's prayer. Um, we could read more of it, but just one more place I want to look. If you go down to, to um, verse 16, Bernard says of Mary, your loving kindness does not only aid whoever seeks it, but many times gives freely what has yet to be implored. This is a this is a kind of complex locution that Virgil is giving here, but he's saying the way in which you don't only give grace to those who, who ask for it, but the way in which you give is by a kind of anticipatory attentiveness that mm-hmm. meets the need before the one in need even knows that he is in need. And at the beginning of the Inferno, when when Beatrice shows up to Virgil, um, Virgil says, oh lady, right? You're, what you ask of me is so good that I wish that I had been able to consent to it before you even asked it. And what Virgil's saying there is the very thing that Mary does here, according to Bernard, right? Mm-hmm. Um, she goes out of her way to answer the need before the need is even asked. Um, it's, a, it's an amazing image, I think, of, of um, Greece as a kind of personal attention and um, anticipation. Right. Absolutely. And, you know, we could spend so much time just on this prayer alone, but um, Bernard, right, starts with praise and then acknowledging who Mary is for humanity and each person individually, and then begins to um, petition on behalf of Dante, that Dante will be able to see um to behold the final vision of the, the beatific vision, the vision of the Trinity in God's self, not mediated, but as directly as humanity can enjoy. 
Um, it's interesting, you know, as we get into the 30s here, the, the, again, the theme of sight come back, comes back. Um, mm-hmm. and, and there's even this hope that after I see what I see, please let me hold on to something of it, right? That, that, mm-hmm. And it comes back in, in a couple of different images. As you said, Dante is, is ardently desiring to hold on to something from this encounter, um, whether it's he likens himself to the one who is dreaming that awakens and hopes to hold on to something of the right. dream. And even if it's not pure, a pure understanding or a clear understanding of what was happening, at least some semblance of it. Um, right. Yeah. Some feeling, some affectation, whatever it might be. So we should, we should take a very, a very brief step back just to talk about the, in very broad terms, the scholastic context for what it is that Dante is about to do, right? So um, the reason you, you mentioned two things that I think are essential, Matt, you said on the one hand, the language of sight comes back and you were talking about the the difficulty of communicating what it is that Dante is going to see here. But you also said that his he has a kind of ardent desire. His love is, is coming back here. And um, as we talked about last time, right, there um, was uh, two different schools of thought, literally two different schools, right? The Franciscan school and the Dominican school about what it meant for us to actually um, be in God's presence in heaven. And very roughly put, very broadly, the Franciscans emphasize that this would be a love of God that would always increase. And the Dominicans thought that it would consist in a knowledge of God that would um, always increase. Now, Dante is influenced by both of these schools. And I don't think it's accidental that he doesn't take a side directly. He actually, we could say, um, my my friend and colleague here at um, Villanova, Kevin Hughes, who's um, written a lot on Bonaventure, but done a lot of work on um, the Middle Ages, he says of Dante that for Dante, the beatific vision was a loving vision and an insightful love. It was the two <laughs> held together and that both would increase in equal measure. And so, for example, Dante says at verse 46, as I neared the end of all desire, I extended to its limit as was right the ardor of the longing in my soul. So there, Dante makes it seem like everything that he needs to do is increase his love so that he's able to um, um, love God. And this would sound like the the Franciscans are all cheering and saying, yes, this is what we've been saying that heaven is like, right? And then he immediately says mm-hmm. um, that my sight becoming pure rose higher and higher through the ray of the exalted light that in itself is true. So there, the language is all noetic. And it's about sight as an image for grasping God by means of the mind. And I think we we only understand Dante rightly if we realize that he is trying to hold together these two things, not as opposed to one another, but as both being essential for the way in which he's about to encounter God. The second thing that I just wanted to mm-hmm. say about, about this that we get from the Scholastics is that um, you had had mentioned that before Dante was seeing God as mediated through mediated through Beatrice, through the other saints, through through his creation, and now Dante will behold 
God as far, like directly insofar as a human being is capable of. But I actually think we should qualify that even just a little bit further and say, no, actually Dante is now going to see God um, directly and love God directly more than a human being is capable of um, in the sense, and this is another scholastic distinction, that the human being is not capable of seeing God directly. And yet um, the the scholastics taught that God gives like a super added, um, what, what they call the light of glory, that allows the human being to become somehow capable, lifted up beyond her own intrinsic capabilities and the capacity to receive God becomes um, increasingly proportioned to what it is that's beheld in God. So that as you grasp more of what God is, you also, your capacity for understanding also increases and that heaven consists in this kind of infinite widening that makes the self capable of enjoying what it is that God is. And so, Dante is saying, this is what's happening to me, and now I'm coming back to try to write about it. Um, mm-hmm. It's, it's going to be impossible um, to do so. So he's describing what he called early in the Paradiso, his transumare, his being taken beyond the human in order to fulfill all it is that as a human being he longs for, um, namely to be with, to understand, and to love God. That's right. And it's interesting on... Uh... With verses 50 and 51, Bernard's trying to get him to look upward and Dante's already doing it. So he's, right. again, Dante is, is, has advanced, right? He, he's not reliant solely upon his guide anymore. He is standing in his own, in his own position, uh, in a way. Um, and I like, as you're saying, right? He says, um, regarding his speech is going to fail him, right? 55, 56, 57, he says, from that time on my power of sight, exceeded that of speech which fails at such a vision as memory fails at such abundance um so that that that's continuing along that theme um and there's again more to say more that's seen than we can say but what would we like to say about what he sees i guess um we're going to eventually get to a direct image uh, or yeah, a couple well, of images so of god a couple uh, of images right um, which don't contradict, but sort of deepen themselves. And let's look at them. I think I think it's almost time to look at them. But I, I just want to say one more kind of intermediary moment here for Dante is we have to remember at the end of Mount Purgatory, Virgil says, now you can take your pleasure as your guide. Whatever you choose, whatever you will is good just because you will it, because your love has been perfected. Here, um, that so that's been the case for a while, and then in Paradise, as we talked about in the uh, our podcast on the opening contos, part of what was going on was a kind of perfection of his intellect. He had to learn, and he was tested, in fact, right on his faith and his hope and his love. Did he understand the faith? Was um, is he able to see correctly? And now what we have is the object that corresponds to that desire and fulfills it perfectly. And the object that corresponds to that understanding and fulfills it perfectly. And so at verse 97, he says, Thus all my mind, absorbed, was gazing, fixed, unmoving, and intent, becoming more enraptured in its gazing. There's that linking of mm-hmm. love and sight. 
He who yeah. beholds that light is, th- is so enthralled that he would never willingly consent to turn away from it for any other sight. Because the good that is the object of the will is held and gathered in perfection there that elsewhere would in perfect show. Mm-hmm. So Dante's saying here in a certain interesting way that he's compelled. He can't help but look at God now. And yet, as we said a number of times in um, this podcast series, that's not a loss of freedom. It's the mm-hmm. perfection of his freedom because now he's witnessing the only, the, the whole, the entirety of all it is that he wants. So he's getting everything that he wants. And he, and he, draw, he underscores for us here towards the very end of the comedy that our freedom doesn't consist in being able to do whatever we want, but rather in the fulfillment of what it is that we actually desire. So there's an interesting way in which the beatific vision compels our consent, which is something we wouldn't, we would never think of that kind of compulsion with consent, but um, it doesn't do so against our will. So it's not compelling in that sense. And yet we couldn't but choose otherwise. So there's a kind of perfect identity of what it is what, that we want and what it is that we've been given. And it's it's the closest that he can come to describing that kind of perfect freedom. It's like it's like you're pulling on the oars and your and your sail is out and the wind is all blowing in the same direction. And um, everything is sort of it, it's a it's the perfect flow of everything going in the same direction, uh, so mm-hmm. to speak. And yeah. that's what his will has become now. Yeah. And the, and the currents with you too. Um, right. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, absolutely. So, so what, it, so what is it that he sees? Uh, Max? Yeah. Well, the, 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 mo- the more he sees, the more he still yet sees. So, mm-hmm. <laughs> right. Which is, um, and so he says on one fifteen, and in the deep transparent essence of the lofty light, there appeared to me three circles having three colors, but the same extent. And each one seemed reflected by the other as rainbow is by rainbow, while the third seemed fire equally breathed forth by one and by the other. So, I mean, we have three circles of the same size initially, right? Of different color, right? And then, Am I wrong? But even within the what I just read, there's a transition to yet another image, or is it all still the same image? Um, yeah, well, because sure. um, we have the fire so being three, mentioned, right? I think that's right. So you've got these three circles. These they're not concentric circles; they are of equal size, and somehow their color. The only thing that distinguishes them is their color. So they seem to be in the same place and yet of different color. Um, how he could see three colors at the same time is unclear. Um, the first and the second are reflected uh, as rainbow is by rainbow, but then the third is like fire that's breathed forth. So the third is is clearly meant to be the fire of the Holy Spirit, breathed forth, mm-hmm. right? The spirated um, right. third person of the Trinity. The reflection is of the sun perfectly um, um receiving all that the father is so there's a this is a the trinitarian image the circle is an image of perfection of unendingness right is there um the the image is 
I think one of the reasons for having the, the invocation of flame and the breathing forth in addition to indicating the, um, the spirit is also to keep us from assuming that Dante is describing something static, um, mm-hmm. that the life of, of God is just is sort of fixed, but instead here there is an energy of giving and, and receiving, of, of spirating, of burning that is proper to you what it is that God um, is. And as if to underline this, and this um, is a continuation of the same image, although it's also a seemingly a changing one. Um, he says at line 124, O eternal light abiding in yourself alone, knowing yourself alone, and known to yourself and knowing, loving and smiling on yourself. So mm-hmm. if we thought of these circles as impersonal like um, you know, Euclidean geometric principles of the of the universe here, the knowing, the loving, and the smiling return between these three persons um, who are given the symbolic shape of a circle in order to abide within um, each other and itself, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. But um, here, I, I love this image of um, of knowing, loving, and smiling that happens within the community of the Godhead. And that this is of course the last image of smiling in the poem. And it's the one that I was suggesting Mm -hmm. Beatrice's smile anticipates that she smiles on him in the same way that God smiles upon God's self within God's self, right? In knowing and loving. Um, So there's a personal exchange within the, the commune, the communion of persons that is God, um, and that's eternal. It's, and what we can say then is, in hindsight, <laughs> that every instance of a genuine smile in the poem was an anticipation and a reflection, a distant echo or image of this eternal smile within um, within God's own life. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's wonderful. Yeah, um, yeah. I, I get in reading it. I just I. As you're going back to the, the notion of color earlier that you mentioned, I can't help but have a, an image of sort of a incandescent mm-hmm. coloring, right? Nothing, not static, mm-hmm. as you were saying, right? Which I think is, I mean, that's my own mental impression, but that seems to be consistent. Um, but I love what you said about this God smiling within God's self. And then it continues that circling, which thus conceived appeared in you as light's reflection. Once my eyes had gazed on it a while, seemed within itself and in its very color to be painted with our likeness so that my sight was all absorbed in it. So this image, image of, of um, image of man, right. Uh, at, right. at the heart. Right. So this is obviously incarnational. Um, and and right. he, he's one, he's wondering at it, right. He says like the geometer who fully applies himself to square the circle and for all his thought cannot discover the principle he lacks. Such was I at that strange new sight, which is interesting that he puts it that way. I tried to see how the image fit the circle and how it found its where and found its where in it. But my wings had not sufficed for that, had not my mind been struck by a bolt of lightning that granted what I asked. So there's a lot right, going on. Here. Yeah, so clearly this is um a way of imaging within the triune God that was conceived in this, in this circular interpenetration of light, although personal, as we said, 
the presence within God himself of, as he says, our, our likeness um, mm-hmm. in the second person of the Trinity. And Dante has given us other images for the second person, um, uh, most famously in the end of the Purgatorio. The image was that of the griffin, right? That was a creature that had two natures. Here, though, I think the marvel is not just that one person can have two natures, but the marvel is that within this eternal, the eternal dynamism of the the communio personarum that is the communion of persons that is God, that somehow within this ineffable um, uh, eternal glory of God's own life, that also Dante, as he is able to look more clearly at it, as the light of glory is given to him more and more, he sees himself and us present there or reflected there in that very life, our own likeness is there, he says, right? Um, Of course, this reaches all the way back to to Genesis 1, the way in which the human being is created in the likeness, but also it reaches all the way forward in salvation history to the the incarnation and then the um, elevation, the theosis, the making to be divine of, of human nature so that God um, truly takes human nature into the very life of um, God's self. And Dante is marveling at this. And he says, he's, as, you, as you said, he's not able to quite conceive it. And then the sort of last action of the, the last great action of the poem is this bolt of light sort of strikes him. And he's, it's like he's like lightning, he says, and it's like he's, irradiated and he suddenly glimpses how it is that God could be both human and divine in the incarnation um, by this super added gift, right? It's almost like, it's amazing. He he seems to be suggesting that it's easier to understand God's own life as the Trinity than it is to understand how we could also have been taken up into this, Mm -hmm. into this life. And then it's granted us the kind of final vision and presumably the highest happiness that the soul could, um, uh, that the soul could imagine and um, enjoy, and then um, he he ends by saying in in the last four verses of the poem, he says, "Here my exalted vision lost its power, but now my will and my desire, like wheels revolving with an even motion." We're turning with the love that may that moves the sun and all the other stars. Um, there's so much about the ending of this that's so wonderful. But one thing that struck me as I've been reading, um, as I read for today, but also as I've been reading, um, doing some of my own uh, work on Dante, I it struck me that in Canto One of the entire poem, um, the first time that love appears in the poem. We, um, is, is a bit of a surprise because Dante is a poet of love. When he wrote about Beatrice, he wrote about love in a, in a courtly way. Um, he wrote about love um, as the love he had for his lady. And he could have started the divine comedy in that way. At the end of that, Vida Nuova and his poems on his love for Beatrice, he says, I'm going to write something of her that no one has ever written of any woman. And so you might think in the beginning, the love that shows up is the love um, he has for Beatrice. And then after Beatrice's death, he writes a book. Um, he, when he's first in exile, he, write, he begins writing a book called The Convivio, which is a book on philosophy. And he says that proper love, 
um, is the love of wisdom. And this is the soul, he says, um, of philosophy. And so he was working on that right before he wrote the Divine Comedy. So you might think, oh, like that's how he's going to start the Divine Comedy. But what he does at the beginning of the Divine Comedy is he talks about the love um, that created all the sun and all um, all the other stars. He talks about the love that um, that envelops the whole of creation and is the very life of the creator. And here at the very end of um, the Paradiso, it's of course that love that is, so to speak, that has the final, gets the final words of the poem. And many people have commented on this before, so I'm, I'm kind of just repeating what, what he's saying here, that, um, you know, God's love sort of gets the last word here, right, in the glory of, um, of the stars that represent the heavens. But it struck me this time reading that um, uh, while that's true, it's also equally just as important that Dante is telling us that the end of the poem is that his own will and desire have been united to this, the love of God that moves the stars, and that the human being doesn't just move along with the divine love the way that the sun and the other stars and all the other creatures do. That is, it just in virtue of what they are. But the human being has the dignity and also the drama, the promise and the peril of whether or not he will actively and freely bring himself into alignment with what it is that he is destined to be. And so the end of the poem is... Um, as much an invitation to us as readers to try to do the same work that Dante himself um, had just been telling us about in the poem, or to cooperate with all of the invitations to join ourselves to that love in such a way. And so the, the poem ends not just on God's love moving the stars, but on Dante being moved by that love in his own um active receptivity his own creaturely participation in that same love mm -hmm. that's wonderful paul um may i just add one thing um I, I the one phrase that sticks out is this um this one of even motion mm. you know it, it just gives me a sense of sort of rhythm and steady movement whereas so much especially in the inferno and the purgatorio was struggle and difficulty and stops and starts and jumping and literally zipping through uh, the heavens even. Um, but now it's all been, it's not stilled as in not moving, but stilled in the sense of, of evenly rhythmic. Um, mm -hmm. so, that, so that jumped out at me, but, but I think like Dante, it's almost like words fail at the end of the comedy. And I think because they do direct the reader, um, toward the mystery that is God, um, that Dante sort of put in such, put that mystery um, in images and words better than probably uh, anyone else has. So outside of divine right, inspiration, right. <laughs> uh, which maybe yeah. he said this, this was divinely inspired in some way. I don't know, but he, he seemed to suggest it, that this poem, um, that the, that the power of the poem as well as the vision of it, um, like like the ancient pagan poets, um, they were inspired by the muses. That he was inspired by God himself, and I think um, Dante certainly isn't um, speaking with a kind of magisterial 
authority, but he does speak with a, if we could put it this way, with a kind of a kind of poetic authority, by which I mean that his image for his images for the divine, his imagination um, for the divine. I'm not quite sure that it's ever been surpassed. I mean, um, this, uh, as he himself would say, it's because it was graced, but this vision of, or this expression of the failure of vision to, um, and yet that, that moves us in this way. I mean, I think Dante would say the, the truth of it lies in its power to, um, to, in the power to move us as readers to want mm-hmm. our will and desire to move with the same even motion as the mm-hmm. love that moves the sun and all the other stars. And that um, that's quite an accomplishment. Absolutely. Undoubtedly. And uh, we've accomplished something in our own way. <laughs> <laughs> we won't put any of the superlatives to, as we, uh, to ourselves as we did to Dante, but um I really have to thank you, Paul, for your contribution and generosity and walking with me through the, through the comedy and um, yeah, just, just a, a word of thanks to you. Thank you, Matt. It was a wonderful uh, time. And now there's nothing to do, but to go and start reading the comedy again, I think. That's right. And um, if uh, you dear listener has joined us all the way through, thank you. You can go back to episode one, as Paul is saying here, and uh, maybe, listen to this series uh again but uh until the next time let's continue journeying further up and further in <laughs>